This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we are back with another installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV, TV Club. Club. Oh, my God. Oh, and this one. Jesus oh, and this one. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. Okay, so the usual disclaimers before we get into it, because there's a lot to get into with this one. Um, you, we cover a documentary or an hour of a true crime television show or special uh, we tell you what it is in advance. We mentioned this one on last week's episode. However, it is not a requirement that you have seen it to enjoy, and I don't know if enjoyment's the word we're going to use today, but to um, appreciate the discussion that we're going to have about it. We see it as our goal to break it down so that you could potentially walk away and pretend that you have seen the episode we're talking about when really you haven't. Sort of like or somebody who's be well advised not to watch it yourself and be subjected to what we were subjected to and having watched it. That's also true. That's also true. Sort of like someone who studied literature at we Yale. We picked this one because it was, you know, we thought it would be like a round spring break. And so we, we picked a spring break. We had, a, we, we had a conversation, were we going to do, because it's Easter Sunday when we're posting this episode. Right. Were we going to do an Easter Sunday crime or a um, spring break crime? And we found one of each, but we found a better documentary, a better show about the spring break crime. Yes. And I think if we had done a little bit more digging, we would have seen that this crime was actually, at the time, widely covered under a different label, which we can get to later. Um, we came to it as the murder of a young man named Mark Kilroy in Mexico. And that was about the extent of what we knew about Over spring it break. When we began. Over spring break. So we will now get into it. The episode, the show is called Passport to Murder. The name of the episode is South of the Border Sins. It's season one, episode two of the show. So if you do want to pause it and go watch and then join in... <laughs> But however, I would recommend that Do you just... Do it before you eat dinner. Just stay with us so that you don't have to go through this one twice. Because I will say, it's the most disturbing one that we've done. Would you think that's a safe thing to say? I think it's the most disturbing. Mm, I think the one in Alaska about the innocent woman. Yeah. That was really hard for me because she was completely... There was a level of morally... Dis it's almost like there's repulsive... And then there's morally disturbing, right? There's there, there difference is, between Saw and Silence of the Lambs right, on the this spectrum. Is, this is yeah, this, this is, is Saw. Um, we're oh about God, that's what is, we're about to do. This is um, really. I think this is more. Well, anyway, we'll get into it. Okay, um, we've never seen this show before, so it was our first time watching yes. Passport to Murder, and we're going to be watching a lot more of them. I can tell you because this uh, was really something. I will say we'll get the superficial stuff out of the way first. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, not a total fail on the reenactment scale. You know I'm the resident. Reencrapments. I hate reenactments, but these were pretty good. They didn't have bad actors what saying wooden dialogue. Up? 
with reenactment hair. What happens? Like, you know you're going to be on camera. So, mm-hmm. like, the one who is playing um, young Billy mm-hmm. and the one who is playing El, Pedro- El Padrino mm-hmm. with the fright wig, with mm-hmm. the, like... Or the one who was playing Brooke Astor. Like, what is up with... I have no idea. ...with reenactment hair? Like, you know you're going to be on camera. Either don't wear a bad wig or wear a good wig or do something nice with your hair. Or if you look through the lens and you're shooting the reencrapment and their hair looks terrible, tell them. I think... Some God, I it, hate that when somebody takes your picture or films you and your hair looks like shit and they just don't bother to tell you. Well, and it's usually a sign that that person just thinks your hair is hair, horrible all the time and what's the use, which just is like, you know, care. fuck them. Um, I think that they spend about 20 minutes making each of these reenactments. That's what I've heard. We have a friend who actually was involved in reenactments and talks about, he would do work on specials like uh-huh. this. They would go out to the parking lot because they needed somebody opening a car door. They needed a hand open. They would just go and shoot the pickup shot outside. So I really don't think a Production lot of Production value is definitely these. a problem with yeah. reencrapments. But, but this is all a long way of saying, I think the hair was bad, but I think everything else about these reenactments, it was not all, offensive. It was all right. Yeah. It was all right. But the hair was really really like oh for heaven's sakes um el padrino was wearing a fright wig for yeah, god's sake it was really okay how are we going to get into it? we okay, need to just just tell the story okay we need to tell the four story. young men going to college together i'm not sure where they were in college i couldn't tell you, from you, the did drive. you get confused by the santa fe thing it was santa fe texas that they were coming from but i77 is on the east Co- i was very confused okay by there the was there was also one thing that this documentary did which is they showed a lot of stock footage of the locations and mixed into it was stock footage not of the location. Okay, so we'll get to that. It's March 10th, 1989, the day before my birthday. Not my actual birthday, because I'm much older than that. Um, my birthday's March 11th. March 10th, 1989, um, four college friends who have been friends with since high school, went to high school together in Santa Fe, Texas. They are now, I think, at different universities, and they have gotten together for spring break. Oh, I thought they were at the same university. I don't know. I think one, of, two of them said that they were friends in high school. And so I don't know if they continued on the university I together. I they had been friends. Well, I actually okay. said they'd been friends since grade school. I it don't doesn't know. matter. It doesn't Four matter. Four friends, college-age friends, right. go together to San Padre Island for- South Padre Island. South Padre yeah. Island for- um, Spring break. <laughs> you were having trouble there. I just thought I'd jump in. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they can't see you threatening me. It's a podcast. I'm not threatening him. I'm just like, it was like, okay, am I going to get to actually this say- This whole one freaked me out. I'm freaked out right now. Okay, well, go. Okay, let me Start know. telling the story. We burn off some of this okay, extra they, energy. They get in a car. They're going to go party at South Padre Island, which is on the Gulf Coast of Texas. And it's a very popular spring break destination, which they demonstrate to us with about- four hours of stock footage of the bikini contest that take place on the beach. Now, the stock footage is... And put um, a pen in that because I think that's significant. Okay. Keep going. So the stock footage of South Padre Island is more recent, and as I was saying earlier, they blend in some shots. I'm like, that crystal blue turquoise water is not the Gulf of Mexico off of Texas no. by any stretch of the imagination. Um, They're there to party. They're there to drink. It's the four of them. They're on the make. They want to meet women. Um, they uh, head out to a bar on South Padre Island where, and they spent some time on this, and I don't know if this is what you wanted to put a pin in or not, where Mark uh, Kilroy, one of the handsome athletic members of the group, is chatting up the winner of the bikini contest. Well, that's 
after they cross the border. Mm, I think it's both. No. I think they run into her again across the border, well, but they spend the night. They spend. They bring a bunch yeah. of. They bring a group of girls back to the hotel room. They stay up all night. Apparently, nobody gets lucky, and so the next day they decide where they can go with the bruise. Booze flows more freely and more cheaply across the border to Mexico okay. to continue the party. So they get in their car and they drive to Brownsville, Texas, which is where the International Bridge is. And the International Bridge goes over the Rio Grande into Mexico, and that's how they cross into the country. Right. And their their intention is to go to Matamoros, which is a huge party town just across the border. And they can drink really cheap booze there, and it doesn't matter that they're underage. Right. Because apparently they're none of them are 21. No. They're younger. Um, some of these facts are being given to us by a crime writer who's actually pretty famous named Mark Billingham, who is a British guy, and he pops up in these specials all the time. And I saw him in one that I think was like a Canadian special, so I don't know if like these are repackaged for various audiences or whatever because it was the same lighting and he was wearing a similar outfit. But anyway, so he's the one telling us these facts about Matamaros. Um, they go there to party and that's where they run into one of the winners of the bikini contest from, the from South Padre Island. Right. You're a correct, lot of people right. from South Padre Island are actually there. They're not alone. They're it's not a strange crowd. They're they're surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of spring breakers, many of them from South Padre, but from the general area. Right. So certainly from this side of the border. Um they estimate that there are 40,000 people partying in Matamaros at this at that very moment. Right. So Jesus. it's a big party. And they also show stock footage of Bourbon Street in New Orleans. <laughs> because you do, like you do. Because, and, you know, whatever. Maybe the rest of it was Mexico. But um, so they, um, it's two in the morning, which I assume was last call. I'm not I have sure to if say, that was the case. I thought that was really like, really? The south of the border, Matamoros closes at two o'clock in the morning on spring break. I, I find that. Kind of astonished, but it was late in any case, mm-hmm. and they decided that they, they had parked on the other side of the border and walked across the bridge, so they set out to go back to the bridge and to go back to, because it's late, and That's they're right. a little hungover from the night before anyway, so it's like, yeah, this is this candle is now burnt at both ends. It's time to go back and crash. And only one of these young men are being interviewed in the present for this special, and his name Billy. is Billy Huddleston. And Billy says at this point, they were all walking, he said he stopped to use the restroom to relieve himself. He didn't, yeah, it and wasn't clear that there was a restroom involved, he was, but in any way, he was going for a, you know. Yeah, peeing against a building or in an alley. Something. He comes out of wherever he's just relieved himself, and I think he briefly finds himself alone, and he starts walking, and he catches up with the other two guys, except for Mark. So they're saying, hmm, I wonder where Mark is. He's probably back at the car in Brownsville on the U.S. side of the border. Let's go over there. It's 1989, so apparently you can just walk back and forth across or whatever year it is. Also no cell phones, so no calling. Back and forth across the border without much difficulty. Yes, no cell phones, so there's no being in touch with each other. So they get back to the car. Mark's not there. So they go back to Mexico, which is where I was like— well, I guess the border was definitely a lot more casual kind of thing. I guess so. I don't know if you can still do that. I, I, I don't know if it was like 10 or 12 years ago, I went to a crime conference in El Paso and people did walk across the border there in a very casual fashion. Like So maybe it's still know. that way. I just always assumed after 9-11 that 
There was oh. always a passport presentation. There was some kind of back and forth, particularly coming into the country. Sure. Leaving, I don't know if Mexico's as strict as we are, but we, yeah. like, just coming as an American citizen back into this country is, uh, you know, they're really careful about it. Yes, Absolutely. So they they go back. That so I'm glad you caught that because I got a little screwing on the chronology. They didn't go back to their hotel. They went back across the border and tried looking for Mark, but didn't find him. And found bars that appeared to be kind of closed down, like the party yeah. was over for the night. It wasn't Passed like around, was, no sign of him. Nobody's yeah. really around. Everybody's leaving. Everybody's. It's really shutting down. Apparently, Madame Morris really does or did back in the olden times. Wrap up at. You know, some point in the early hours. So they go back to their hotel in Brownsville. I don't think they go all the way back to South Padre Island. That I got confused about. They go where they were planning to sleep for the night. And they think Mark will show up eventually. He doesn't. They wake up the next morning. There's no sign of Mark. And now they decide that whatever this is is really serious. And their first instinct is that maybe he was arrested in Matamoros. Or Something. So right. they go back and talk to the police there to right. see if maybe they have some lead on where Mark is. And the police don't take them very seriously because this is not their first spring break. Mm-mm. This happens all the time, apparently. And, you know, in the reenactments, they show the cop sort of laughing uproariously over all of it, which I thought might have been a little bit extreme. But that was how they portrayed that um, cynical approach to the missing persons. Yes, report, not very will. not particularly flipped out about it. So they decide that they will probably be taken more seriously if they report Mark missing to the Texas authorities. So they go to the Cameron County Sheriff's Office, which oversees Brownsville, which is where they had planned, which is where they did stay for the night. And they talk to a detective there named George Gavito. And he is interviewed in the special. Yeah. Um, He says, I looked at the profile of who this guy was. And he did not look like a runaway to me. He was a success. He was athletic. He was doing well in school. He had good relationships with his friends. However, his statement to me that I didn't think he was a runaway suggests that more time elapsed here than was necessarily suggested by the schedule. Uh, uh, the show, I mean, Man. you know, like like they had allowed a few days to go by working with the Mexican authorities and weren't getting anywhere. So, um, they make the friends make a difficult decision, which is they let Mark's parents know that he's missing, uh, which for them was like a kind of threshold moment. Once they that news got out, this was going to definitely escalate and become something more serious. Um, the parents become very involved right away, and they put up a $10,000 reward. 15000 Oh, I got that wrong. Fif- and as they point out, in Mexico at that time, minimum wage might be a couple of dollars a day. And so $15,000 was a huge offer in that point in time in right. this particular environment, even on this side of the border. Like, it was a lot more than it is now. It's still plenty of money. Mm-hmm. I could do a lot with $15,000 mm-hmm. right this minute. I could go to lunch. lunch. Um, but yeah, they so they put up the reward, and that kind of changes the temperature. <laughs> I'm 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. So... The reward from Mark's parents, which is $15,000, thank you for that catch, is put up, and there the uh, police, the Brownsville police and the Mexican police receive a flood of tips. The tips just of start tips. pouring in sightings everywhere, all kind of, a lot of it probably nonsense, but it really reinvigorates the search. It really does. Um, and there is a, th- they, they have- They form a task force- Yes, they form a joint task force between the Mexican authorities and the Texas authorities, right. American authorities. Texas is not a nation, um, <laughs> even though sometimes it threatens to become one. They um, they are overwhelmed by the tips, and they are dismissive of a lot of them because they don't check out. But there's a theme coming through in a lot of the anonymous tips, which is this has something to do with the occult. People are saying you should check out Satanist, you should check, and they're like, what, what, what the fuck is that? Satanist, you know, like they're not really absorbing it until a strange note arrives at the Brownsville um, police officer's desk, and it is it has a pentagram and a goat drawn in maybe blood. Yes, and in Spanish it says, "Mark was not the first. Dun, 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 dun. This was a movie, and I got to warn you, a lot of what's about to happen plays out like a horror movie. Um, the guy said the 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 Padrino the 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 Brownsville oh, sheriff Cavito Cavito yes. says that um, at this point he you know they were treating it as either a kidnapping or he was dead, and mm-hmm. he said at this point it really seemed like. He was probably dead. Well, and they, they always express this attitude, the cops do. Like, the, <clears throat> if, if you don't find them in the first 48 to 72 hours, they're acting like it's kind of over. You know, the person is dead. And yet, when you go to them, they say, but he's not been missing for 48 to 72 hours uh, yet, so it's too early to start looking. And it's like, well, you can't have it both ways. Yes, yeah, that's, a, and you know, that is really true. Um, so this is when the special makes a jump. Wow, this is the departure moment. <laughs> this is the departure moment. Like, we leave this note, and we don't ever really address who actually sent this Never note. Never comes up again. But this is not what you wanted to put a pin in. You were putting a pin in something having to do with the beginning. It, we'll, get, we'll okay. get there. All right, we'll get there. Um, we suddenly begin an exploration by way of the narration and the reenactors of a very powerful drug gang that works in this region of Mexico. The Hernandez family. The Hernandez family. That is correct. And the Hernandez family is in the thrall of a gentleman whose name I want to get very right because it is it does not trip off the tongue. Adolfo Constanzo is his name. 
El Padrino. And they call him El Padrino. Which means the godfather, apparently, in Spanish. Okay, yes, exactly. And the Federalists in Mexico, which is, I believe, that's the Mexican police. If I, Am I wrong about that? I'm not going to be an authority. I am Maybe. not either, but the, the Federales are investigating. That seems like FBI to me, if it's federal. Yes, maybe but, so. But who knows? Maybe so. I don't know how they handled that down there. They're investigating the Hernandez drug gang actively. Right, in terms of their drug smuggling. They're a huge marijuana smuggling Marijuana operation. and heroin, both. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, they have some sense that Costanzo has convinced his drug gang that if they perform certain violent rituals, they will be impervious to law enforcement's attempts to stop them, that they will be quite literally invincible. And if you remembered earlier that some of the tips that were flowing into the police were referencing things about Satanism and the occult. All right. So that was foreshadowing for this moment. So this random guy, basically. Well, we're gonna... they, there's a drug bust. They, they are going right. after a, the, Cast- the Costanza yeah. family. I mean, the Hernandez family. But do you remember how they got to them? This guy is driving down a road in in a rural region of Mato, outside Matamoros. He blows past a checkpoint station. They get in an unmarked police car and they begin chasing him. And they follow him to this ranch where there is a drug bust. They arrest him and some accomplices as well as they also confiscate some of the drugs. And it turns out the guy says, I basically believed that you wouldn't catch me because I am empowered by these um, special rituals that we have all been participating in. And the guy is incredibly arrogant and doesn't seem remotely cowed by the police. And um, so the police simultaneously... Yeah, they interview him and apparently he's laughing and joking and says he's really hungry. Could we stop for food? And he's like completely casual about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Pause for Fresca. Um, (laughs) And a cold compress. And a cold compress because we are getting to... We'll just get there. Um, They go and they find the groundskeeper for the ranch where they had the drug bust. And they bring him in to interview him about this drug gang that they now believe is using this ranch for their criminal activities. And they've rounded up other people in the drug bust. It wasn't like yeah. just him. Like they busted other people at the ranch. There's like a not El Padrino, but the other people who were present at the I don't the even know. Where... Are they aware of El Padrino yet? Like this was where well, I got a little bit. They know confused. what the, the drug gang is not unfamiliar to them. So, yeah. yes, they are. He yeah. just wasn't there. Right. And so the police officer, the Mexican police officer who is who is heading up this interrogation is Juan Benitez Ayala. Uh, he is not interviewed in the present, so I don't know if he's still with us. All of this is happening in 1989. Um, he's a young, ambitious officer. He is determined he is going to get them to talk, and he thinks that the groundskeeper is going to be the vulnerable point. Because the more he questions the guy, the more it's clear he's not really involved with the drug gang. He, they're on the property, and he's whatever— and but he's 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 sincere and he seems to be. He authentic. doesn't know about the drugs. He says he really doesn't know. But he sees a photograph lying on an adjacent desk of Mark Kilroy. And this is the second pen. Go ahead. Okay. And he says, "I know that. I've seen that guy." And Alaya is like, "Wait a minute, this guy, this American guy." He's like, "Yeah." He says, "I discovered him." In, tied up in the trunk of one of their cars. And yeah, I think I know why you pinned this one. And he wanted some water 
So I got him some water. And um, that was it. I fucking left him there oh, tied so up I in the tried trunk. To out and then they drove away with him in the car. Yeah, and they drove away with him in the car, and that was really all I could do. But I know they had him. Right. So they take this information into the adjacent room, interrogation room, where they're still inter- interrogating the guy who blew past the checkpoint, whose name is Seraphine, I believe. Uh, and he says, oh, yeah, 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 I know that guy. I know that guy. And he makes what the special dubs an incredible confession. I mean, just, let's go with unbelievable. Yeah. So here is the substance of his confession, which is played out for us in disturbing reenactments. Um, what's the term again for the godfather? The pa- El Padrino. Serafina claims that El Padrino ordered his drug gang to go to Matamoros and to abduct a young, healthy, strong American man. Intelligent American man. Intelligent American man. And bring him back to their ranch so that they could torture and murder him as part of a human sacrifice that is a component, allegedly, and this is where we are we are referencing the sources in this documentary and not making any... Uh, Which are almost entirely the Mexican police. And a professor um, from a university in Texas who, who... just shows up and is willing to say this stuff. And he is brought in to explain something called Palo Mayombe which is described as a form of black magic. Now, we here at Christopher and Eric are not making sweeping judgments of other people's belief system. We are simply describing how this was bracketed and described right. in the in this hour of television that we are discussing. And that this ritual, this component of Paolo Mayombe, said that if they tortured and murdered this man, which consisted of sustained and repeated sodomizing of him while he was alive, rape, they raped him, and they removed his brain from his body and boiled it in a cauldron that the entity, the powerful entity that lived in the brew that they were making in the cauldron would transfer Invest them with, with special powers, greater power. And uh, <laughs> so they, they, he claims they did all this. Uh, he claims that there was a witch present a woman whose real name turns out to be Sarah Aldretti, who is the gang's, they call, they describe her She's as the, the witch. witch. Um, the godmother, at the very least, La Padrina, I don't know. Yeah, I but have maybe. no idea. But she's also a college student in Brownsville. She's living a, a, a double life, apparently, as, a, as an honors college student at a university in Brownsville, while she is, meanwhile, running with this drug gang on the other side of the border and participating, maybe overseeing their satanic rituals, which involve torture and murder. So he just confesses to all of this. Again, pretty casually, or at least that's the way it's described, that he doesn't have, it's a very fearless kind of thing, and he takes them back to the site. He takes them back to the room, he takes them to the room where all of the, tor- where the torture and the murder took place, and I think that's when he starts getting more specific about what sort of torture it was, and it was, it was really bad. Um, and they say, where's the body? And he says, oh, well, I can take you to the body over here because we ran a wire through his spine after he was dead so that it would... So that later we could pull it back out of the ground after he's decayed so we could make it into a necklace. We could make a necklace out of his spine. And so he's basically showing them where to dig up this body and then Serafina casually drops... Oh, and by the way, there are 14 other bodies, you know, all around us because we've done this 14 other times to 14 other people. 
tortured. Let's go get let's go get some food. And that's when he says, "Can we get some tacos?" Yeah. <laughs> so we're supposed to believe that this guy believes he's been rendered so invincible by these by these rituals that he's not afraid that he's surrounded by police that he's exposed the details of all these crimes. I don't know what he thinks is going to happen if this spirit they called forth is just going to rip the cops to shit. Anyway. (laughs) So um, he also reveals lots of information about Costanzo, who is... Say it again. I keep forgetting. El Padrino. El Padrino. Um, And they go on the hunt for him. They go on the hunt for... He's already gone on the run Mm -hmm. because he's... You know, saw this coming and is apparently not as quite so stoned as um, Mr. Serafino. Right. Well, his behavior subsequently suggests that he's been maybe imbibing a little bit of his product. But they hop on a plane to Mexico City, which is well south of where all this has taken place, right near the border. And so then the police make a decision, which I thought was like, I wanted to know more about how they arrived at this decision and the research that they'd done. In front of television cameras, they set fire to the buildings where the where the murder took place and the torture, the ritual took place. The ritual, place. right, the altar and this religious, crazy religious cult. They burned it to the ground and filmed it and put it on television. And yeah. El Padrino lost his shit. Loses his shit because he sees this as the destruction of a center of his power. He sees there it's basically like they burned his church. They burned where he did these rituals. They burned where he supposedly took all this energy and power from the victims of his murder and torture. And so he goes This is one of the most bizarre parts of the story. I swear to God. Yeah. He goes to the window and he throws starts throwing handfuls of money out the window. People in the streets below come to grab the money and he begins shooting them. He has an automatic weapon, or that's what he's portrayed as having in the reenactment. Some kind of rifle. And he starts firing out the window at these people. The police descend on the hideout outside Mexico City. He's surrounded, and with him are other members of the gang. um, Or cult. A homosexual lover who is not identified by name but is referenced in passing. Right. Um, Sarah Aldretti, who is the accused witch of the gang. And he turns to one of them, I don't think they say who, and he says, you have to kill me. You know, you have to kill me before they can take me. This is my final command. And so they do. They shoot him. And the others are Again, arrested. that's what they said he said. Yeah. <laughs> this is another Eric Shaw Quinn This is pen. another pen. Yeah. Um, they're all arrested. They're marched in front of the cameras. In July 1989, which I guess we're now almost a year after the murder, we're a year after the disappearance of Mark because we aren't really clear how much time elapsed before his body is discovered and his disappearance. Uh, They are placed on trial. Sarah Aldretti claims she is completely innocent. We are not given many of the details by this special of what her version of the story is, but we're shown a little clip of her saying, I helped look for the guy when he went missing. It was really sad. I didn't have anything to do with this. Um... Meanwhile, Seraphin, our, our blabbermouth who believes he's impervious, and eight other ga- uh, defendants readily admit to their crimes. Um, they're all found guilty and sentenced to life. Again, part of the story we don't get, Sarah Aldretti is not put on trial until 1994, whereas this other trial happens in 1989. Uh, and she is sentenced to 62 years in prison. We just needed to get through all that, and now we can talk... <laughs> 
<laughs> right. <laughs> it was like so I, that's what happened. We couldn't thread that out into like, like yeah, yeah. He killed him with a machete. A machete by cutting off the top of his head while he was still alive, and pulled his brain out. The so, most disturbing just story we have covered. Really, on this show. Yeah. yeah. That was like so. There it all is. There's all the facts as laid out and presented in this particular special, and and uh, and uh, and now comes the part where we maybe re-explore some of those pens from earlier. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. As we begin an exploration of the pins that you placed in this earlier, I have a little bit of a confession to make, which is that I broke a TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric rule. Totally. Did and you I, read the New York Times? I didn't read the New York Times. Oh, the, you broke it way the, more than I the did. The Rolling Stone? No. Oh, my God. You really broke it. I did the Wikipedia well, page. I'm sorry, but I watched this and went, well, that's not what happened. I, there's a lot It was. Here. Do you know the thing that sent me looking was it was south of southwest of Salem? Do you mm-hmm. remember that the satanic yes. panic story that we did as our very first uh, true crime yes, TV absolutely. installment? That's actually what sent me looking because I was like, all of this explanation is coming from really third party explana- mm-hmm. ex- uh, exponents across the border who didn't really show up for this in the first place, and then really only showed up after the. Fr- it was like it was really okay. So let me start with the first. There was I thought the focus on how all of these very nice-looking young men were so focused on all of these really hot babes at this um, at this event and all these mm-hmm. bikini contests and wet T-shirt contests and took them back to the room and nobody gets laid and they leave town? Mm-hmm. Like, huh, mm-hmm. that seemed like an unusual part of the story. Mm-hmm. So then we go back to, um, we go to south of the border and what do you know, Mark winds up with... The queen of the um, the bikini contest, mm-hmm. and then it's time to go home, and yet none. She doesn't go home with them. None mm-hmm. of the women go home with them, and then one of the member of their party wanders off, gets lost from the crowd, and some strange um, Latin gentleman mm-hmm. asks him to get into his truck, mm-hmm. or in some other way, um, you know, like. Like one of the things, one of the components of the description was nobody saw him abducted. Yeah. So if a gang of men jumped out of a truck Mm -hmm. surrounded by 40,000 Americans, grabbed one of them, threw him in the truck, tied him up and drove off with him, people would have noticed. But if one of them went to, you know... Something he saw in the Adams Guide. Mm. <laughs> oh, God. And yeah. A young man, a, an attractive mm-hmm. man, called to him from the window of mm-hmm. his car and he walked over and started talking to him and then mm, agreed to get inside the car. And then things really got bad. Mm-hmm. Then 
then that seems like a more plausible way for this to have begun. Because what ultimately happens to him is, I mean, I think a lot of this happened, but, you know, he was gang raped and murdered Mm -hmm. in a hideous, dismembering kind of way. This seemed to me to be more of a John Wayne Gacy kind of story Mm -hmm. than a story about satanic panic, you know? Yes. And I will say also in the Wikipedia research I did, according to the full account of Serafina, there were... And this is, you can either believe this or not, there were more moves to the abduction that he got away and ran and that they had to drive after him. That's not portrayed in the special, probably cut for time. So that gets to your point of if that really happened, that was greater exposure. That was more stuff for the city with 40,000 people partying in it. And again, self-serving and yeah, yeah. we and, were so strong we were able to overpower him and get him down yeah i, just, I definitely really seems and then there's the fact that apparently that el padrino frequent a, a gay man from mexico city who had moved there and become really powerful um in this gang um would frequently send them out into the city to or and and in one case maybe even into brownsville to abduct young men who fit his description so that they could bring them back to their you know, ritual altar right, yeah. for to um, rape and murder. Now, whether the people who were participants in that believed that they were going to get special powers out of it or not, who knows? Because mm-hmm. we're already into a pretty into pretty crazy territory mm-hmm. if you're participating. But yeah, this was like death, but first Chi-Chi. Yeah, exactly. And they also um, there was an element of which I saw on Wikipedia that the thing that clued them into the sexual element of this was that when they went and raided some residences of um, Costanzo's, they found a lot of homosexual pornography. It's not like oh, and then we found out later that we he had a boyfriend and that they did extensive interviews in in the gay community in Matamoros, who I'm sure were just thrilled to have the police there. I'm asking sure they were delighted. Guy. And so, there was the the. Um, their fondness with the movie The Believers. Yes, absolutely. That they frequently, that, what's her? what was her name? Sarah Aldretti. And let's Sarah. talk, if you don't know what The Believers was, it was a movie that came out in 1987 directed by... John Schlesinger. John Schlesinger. My who dear was, friend. Is a good, dear friend, d- dearly departed friend. Um, in the Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen was in it. Um, the premise of the movie is that there is a cult practicing, I think it's Condomble is what they called it, no, it's not Condomble. It's it's. Uh, um, I'm going to get the name wrong, and I don't want to sound racist. Um, and they are practicing it to gain power in business in right. Manhattan. It, it was a sort of scary thriller that was sacrificing in the 80s. people to yeah to gain spiritual power in in the I don't know the stock market or right. whatever. But yeah, it's a horror movie. Yeah, it's a horror movie, and and Sarah Aldretti was obsessed with the movie, and they were big fans of it. Um, so it's kind of like they cobbled it together. There was an enormous amount of anxiety from what I read about how to frame this crime and how to react to this crime, specifically in America. And the the parents of Mark Kilroy took the tactic that this was a drug crime, that what had happened to their son was was drug-related. It was an outgrowth of, of the drug epidemic and the drug trade, and they felt that the people who reported on it didn't capture that. They didn't focus it. It gets back to the point that you made about our discussion of Southwest of Salem. Everybody wanted that everyone bought hook, line, and sinker into the satanic element of this. Right. These were Satanists. You know, these were they truly believed this shit. 
Whereas if I'm understanding you correctly, it's you think that was more of a cover story for I something that, that was, was just... I think that was a part of their own twisted whatever, you yeah. know, maybe or maybe not, because all of that reportage is from people who are crafting the after story. But what happened was uh, a hapless young man was in some way or other convinced to get into a car with a stranger, driven off somewhere, gang raped and murdered. That's what happened. And he was one of a series of people who did it. And they even theorized that there were a lot of other places where it had taken place too. And they just didn't get that information. Right. And what I said at the beginning of the show, which I learned, is that this crime, rather than being called the the murder of Mark Kilroy by most people, is called the Matamoros cult murders. That's actually what several books about it have been called. And and it was a more expansive, it's almost like they found one way into this more expansive criminal enterprise for the sake of this one hour of television. Um, and I think I... And he was kind of the linchpin, though. He was the reason that they investigated and broke up whatever this was, cult or drug den or just sexual lunatics, um, sadists or monsters. Well, I mean, if it's really, if the timeline that's presented by the the special is correct, it it feels so accidental. It's like you have a picture lying on a desk. You have, what was the groundskeeper? You put a pin in the groundskeeper. And that was it. It was the, it was the, it was the photograph. Like that photograph wasn't lying on the table in a conference room. Like that's not what happened. Well, do you think it could have been on a wall, like a missing person? I have no idea. Yeah. But I did not believe that. There were a series of things I didn't believe. I didn't believe that he was strong-arm abducted into the car. I think he got mm-hmm. in the car of his own volition for in his own reason. In pursuit of something. In yeah. For something. It was maybe a joint, I think, because they went very strong about him not being into drugs. I think it was probably, you know, a little man-on-man, which once they knew he was disposed, then they were mm-hmm. like, whatever. I don't have any idea, but I didn't believe the explanation. I thought that the heavy-handed depiction of their being in hot pursuit of all these women and yet never quite finding any, even though they were surrounded Mm. at all times, seemed a little, that just seemed odd to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe, particularly this guy of the group, he was a babe. They showed, he could have scored. They showed a picture of him and and it was, he was a very attractive guy. Given that moment in time, he was a fine looking man. And if, had he been, and pre-med, and so had he been interested, I think, that he would not have been heading back by himself, even though he'd met up with the winner of the contest. And so those those little elements, they were just little aspects of it. Like telling the story from this perspective is like, well, that's a good explanation for you, but but that's just you telling me that that's what happened. Like he just gladly told them all this information. Really, is that really what happened? The guy only yeah. saw him in the car, you know, but that's mm-hmm. not... Like there was a whole host of things that were like... All right. Well, I I expect there's a mix back and forth, but I felt like that even this this story because it took place was being told to us at this at the point in time that it was was a little franker. The inclusion of the fact that he was sodomized, mm-hmm. the inclusion of the fact because that wasn't in a lot of the contemporary coverage mm-hmm. um, at the time. The inclusion of the fact that he had that his gay lover was a part of the group and he'd escaped with him, mm-hmm. right? And then those kinds of things were not included. In the story, there was a very sort of crafted, but those just little mentions mm-hmm. kind of tipped me off that, yeah, I think we're not getting the whole story here. I, I thought that it was um, a good telling of the of the the, the timeline of events, mm-hmm. but I thought that a lot of the efforts to characterize the events in a particular way were about 
forcing it to fit into a particular narrative that didn't naturally suggest itself right. from the facts that were being presented. Like there was just a photograph of Mark lying on a table in a in a room where they were coming from a drug bust. Like why would do Mark you believe the story about the guy blowing past the roadblock? Because that's really like the inciting incident. That's the thing that broke it open. Is Sarah this guy Serafina? blows past this roadblock thinking he won't be caught because spirits power him. Yeah, and, and that seems yeah. really like, okay, I guess. They followed, for some reason they followed him. That's mm, like the broken taillight thing, like it leads to a bigger bust. Maybe, but maybe he was arrested for other reasons and decided to tell a story in order to get out of other charges or maybe this was a great way to tell this story that let... Um, local authorities off the hook because they didn't want it to seem like um, this was a bad place for Americans to come and spend for 40,000 Americans to come and spend a lot of their money yeah. every year at spring break. Like there's a lot of other, you know, it's like the, the mayor in jaws mm-hmm. not wanting to close the beach because so if it's this crazy group of Satanists, Satanists, yeah, you know, then whatever. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, some, more intrinsic and dangerous. And by 1987, uh, 1988, excuse me, we're already there with the satanic panic, right? We're already in it. So it's all you have on. to say is sat- satanic, and everyone. I went, I went back to find yeah. the, the 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 ones from South by Southwest because that was the thing that came up for me. It was yeah. like we're back to satanic panic because mm-hmm. that's the cover story. We want this to fit into a satanic satanic kind of ritual thing, and even the descriptions of um, Paolo whatever. Say that human sacrifice was not something that was practiced. That's why I really thought I wanted us to be careful about this because it's like I thought it was a really glib and potentially problematic way of describing a spiritual belief system because I have heard that that sort of reflexive knee-jerk racism about Caribbean Afro-Caribbean religions for so long that it's all voodoo. It's yeah. all about pinning, putting pins in people, and it's it, there's a lot more sophistication and nuance to that. So. Yeah, I totally, I, I totally was nervous about that. And I, the thing that I, I did read as well on Wikipedia was that the be- around um, Costanzo, I always forget the term that you're El Padrino. El Padrino, that apparently he had a belief, or they believed that he believed as a result of his spiritual practices that it was his divine right to profit from the inferiority of drug addicts. That, and so that implies that he was not using the product himself, no matter how crazy he was acting, but that that was part of his acquisition of power was that he preyed on the weak, essentially, that he embraced that. It was like a spiritual mission. And that sounds a little convenient as well. That sounds very you convenient. Know? Like it may this may just be really expansive gay bashing. Yeah. You know, like once we know it's a maricon, isn't that mm-hmm. the the word like you know it's okay to do whatever you want to right yeah like i don't know i really have no idea and it wasn't presented but what was presented to me did not on the face of it fully convince me that that was the entire story well i'm gonna do more research on it because i ordered some out-of-print books about it because i was i had a similar instinct and fascinating and it's just the most hideous it's absolutely hideous grotesque and and it really it landed with me in the same way that hearing the details of the 
the John Wayne Gacy murders did. Yeah. Where the brutality and the savageness of yeah. the, you know, people just brought in, used for sex, and then strangled or suffocated or chopped up. It was just a revolting. It was it was awful. It was it's the most disturbing one that we've ever well, yeah. it's the most grotesque one we've ever covered. But I think that some of the answers to the questions about um the missing pieces of the story lie with Sarah Aldretti and why she wasn't tried until 1994. Yeah. And I know that she has released um, a biography. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it was with a major publisher, but that she has a side to the story that uh -huh. she has not given up on as of the Wikipedia entry that I read last night. I don't know if she's since given up on it or if she's still alive, but that's kind of what I want to know more about. And so right. since we both broke the rule, I, and now I'm going to go dive in head first and try to learn more. I just was like, but, I was, those details were, I couldn't not know more about, like, I, I tried not to do, like, the thing that I looked for first was the, the timing of South by Salem, southwest of Salem. Which yeah, is, and if you don't know what we're talking about and you're listening to, I think it was the first installment that we did of True Crime TV Club, which is like episode three or episode four of this podcast, we talked about a documentary called Southwest of Salem, which was a group of lesbians who were falsely accused of horrible satanic molestation and have since been exonerated. And we walk you through that whole case and all and the And it was and a time of a, a phenomenon called satanic panic yes. where things were being attributed to Satanism and in that case, it was entirely fantastical. Yeah. And it just seemed like a convenient fit. And then the other thing I wanted, they said, and then they did not follow up on in the special, that there were 14 other people. And we never and get like, anything about them. What's the nature? And I wanted to know. And when I read that he had said that he would send them into town to get other men to, to do So the they same were all men, all 14? They were doing, I don't know that that's true. Yeah. Because they said that a couple of them might have been... Um, uh, People who would they'd run you know they'd had trouble with yeah right but that doesn't mean they weren't raped and murdered it just mm -hmm. means that they weren't necessarily abducted from town but they said they'd even sent them to Brownsville yeah. to abduct one man I don't know if he was a young man or not but one assumes if that was what he was going well for, I'm going to find probably. out because yeah. I have to it's one of those things where it's so horrible it's going to stick in my head forever and I'm going to need to know as much as I can about it to like get it out of, to light up the shadows in it because it's just God it's awful and it, it's like the type of this is the type of story that I make up stories like Burning Girl about so that I can invent a character strong enough to just go in and kick the shit out of people like this. You know, like I just... So you can, um, yeah. what's it called? Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the story. Yes, yes. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't talk because we'd give away the end. If you haven't seen it, then we don't want to If you haven't seen it, it, there is an aspect of that movie that is very much like what I just described. Like Burning Girl. Alternate history. But like, you hear of somebody in a situation like that and you... God, you just want them to be. You want the Hollywood ending. You want them to be able to rise up and kick their way out and get. God, for, you that know, poor like poor kid. That poor kid is just so horrible, and and also like a conversation maybe about the fact that men are victims too. You know, and I think oh, yeah. it's particularly around this that we may have a distorted attitude of how many men are actually targeted by serial killers and hideous violence because certain stories get rewritten. You know, particularly around homosexuals, and I'm, well, we, we don't know Mark story, Kilroy is that, but I'm saying that we there did are, that story from Louisiana where yeah. the, the unbelievable serial killer and literally no coverage because he him. killed entirely men. He, he was killed, a gay man who yeah. killed entirely men, and I think we're in a weird space right now where it's like 
people are inclined not to talk about it because they think they'll be seen as homophobic, but at the same time, they're erasing the victims in in part. So yeah. it's like it is. I think some of what needs to be done is is blowing the dust off some of the stuff that's been thrown over these stories and getting at the accurate version of them because I think I there was a serial killer in Southern California named Randy Kraft who murdered a lot of young men. He would pick up men and spike their drinks and. Uh, rape and murder them, and he went on for years. I mean, he just killed men for years before he was finally caught, and he has claimed his innocence right up until his day. But if you read that story, you read, um, you experience the the silencing effect that happened around the fact that he was homosexual. It's not like the police investigated it, but the way the crime was reported on and received, I don't know. It's almost like we don't want to believe men can be victims. And yeah. they are. They very often yeah. are. Not as frequently as women. There are more Ted Bundys than there are Randy Crafts, but at the same time, whether he is- got in the car willingly, it doesn't matter if you're eventually surrounded and overpowered. Even a man can be overpowered by you know by enough people. By a group people. of men. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a downside on him at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I have my favorite story. I guess I'll have to bring it up another time because it looks like we're running out of time. But, yeah. you know, the, the kidnapping in, in Santa Barbara that always, that just vanished yeah. from the headlines once it became clear the way in which things were unfolding. There's a real, I don't, and maybe it's going away, and I know we're running out of time, but I want to throw this in. There's a real terror. I had a harder time in the beginning of my publishing career working with mainstream publishers writing scenes of men being sexually submissive than gay men being sexually aggressive, if that makes sense. Yes. There was a real terror around it. The idea of male bottoming really frightened people at the time, even those who thought they were super liberal and accepting. They just couldn't. You know, and that's a terrible. I wrote a screenplay once that yeah. included a the, the, yeah. somebody who was serially raping and killing men, and HBO said it was too scary. And and listen, rape is horrible. Rape is horrible. It's an act but of it's violence. horrible if it happens to men, it's and an it's horrible if it happens to women. It's equally horrible to both. It's not more horrible if it happens to a man. Rape is rape, and it's not like yeah. okay for evening television because it happened to a woman. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, um, it's a strange phenomenon. Ending with a little bit of righteous anger to deal with our lingering disturbed feelings. Oh my God! So if you're looking, yeah, if you're looking for something to really like blow your cookies over, this is the show. Like, wow, what a hideous murder! So happy spring break, happy Happy Easter, everybody. Stay safe. Um, Watch out for your friends. Like that's another. Like stick together. Whatever happened? Like stick together and stick together when you're drunk. Like stick to like situational awareness. And again. women have had more socialization and training in that skill. Like I know girlfriends who will like pull their friends out of the bar if they look like they're got slipped something really Mm -hmm. sick. Men need it too. Clearly. Clearly. Okay. Next week we're going to talk about something way more cheerful. Like it's not, we're, we're alternating a true crime TV club with more general discussions. We're going to do reviews of children's golden times. We really are. We're going to read part-time puppy, a part-time puppy next week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the podcast. Until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.